Anatomy of a Worker Classification Dispute with the IRS by Hale E. Shepard, published in Practical Tax Strategies, October 2019, read for you by Kristen Dummer. Introduction. The IRS often shifts its resources, focusing enforcement efforts in priority areas. In recent years, the IRS has devoted considerable attention to failures to report foreign assets, charitable deductions related to conservation easements, and captive insurance companies. While these matters tend to grab headlines, the IRS continues to plot ahead, largely unnoticed, challenging other tax issues that it finds problematic. Among these issues is worker classification. The IRS is constantly auditing businesses and attempting to recharacterize their workers as employees instead of independent contractors. This is a simple matter of economics. The IRS estimated a few years ago that the tax gap, that is, the difference between what taxpayers should pay and what they actually pay, was approximately $345 billion, with a B, and a significant percentage of this financial shortfall was attributable to worker misclassification and other employment tax noncompliance. Given the aggressive tactics used by the IRS, the ignorance of many business owners of complex tax rules and procedures, and the potential cost, in terms of taxes, penalties, and interest, associated with involuntarily converting workers from independent contractors to employees, it is critical to analyze and update worker classification issues periodically. This article does just that, using attacks by the IRS on life insurance agents as a model to advance the discussion. Four Categories of Workers To understand manners of defending against the IRS in a worker classification dispute, one must grasp the main categories. Workers fall into four groups. They can be 1. Statutory employees, 2. Statutory non-employees, 3 common law employees, or four independent contractors. Statutory employees are, like they sound, workers who are defined as employees in a statute. For instance, tax provisions explain that the term employee includes officers of corporations as well as individuals who perform the following jobs for compensation. 1. Agent driver or commission driver engaged in distributing particular products. 2 full-time insurance salespersons, three, so-called homeworkers who perform work on materials or goods provided by their principals according to specifications set by the principals, and then return the improved goods to the principals or a designated party, and four, traveling or city salespersons engaged on a full-time basis in soliciting for their principals orders from wholesalers, retailers, contractors, or operators of hotels, restaurants, or other similar establishments for merchandise for resale or supplies for use in their business operations. For their part, statutory non-employees are, logically, workers who are specifically excluded from the definition of employee by a statute. Among the statutory non-employees are direct sellers who, according to a written contract and on a commission or other performance-driven basis, sell consumer products, personally or through others, in a home or in any other place that is not a permanent retail establishment. Unlike the preceding two categories, common law employees are not identified in tax statutes. Rather, as the name indicates, they are products of judicial evolution. The relevant regulations provide that one of the key factors in determining whether a particular worker should be considered a common law employee is the degree of control that the company possesses and or exercises over the worker. 
The regulations clarify that in making a decision about common law employee status, the IRS must consider the particular facts of each case. The IRS released a list of 20 factors decades ago that still serves as a guide in this analysis. Finally, independent contractors are those workers characterized by flexibility in the manner of performing services who do not fall in any of the preceding categories. Background on the agency and its workers. The facts in every case vary, of course, but here are some common ones in a situation involving an insurance agency, agency, and its sales force. The IRS frequently scrutinizes these types of workers, claiming that they should be categorized as statutory employees or common law employees. The agency is an insurance agency licensed by the Financial Services Department of the relevant state, which sells policies. It is not an insurance company, which underwrites policies, assumes financial risks, pays claims, etc. The agency essentially acts as a conduit for multiple insurance companies. Each worker signs some type of independent contract or agent agreement with the agency, expressly stating the intent of all parties that the workers are independent contractors, not employees. The role and involvement of the agency is limited, purposely. It provides the workers with basic initial sales training, presentation materials for potential clients, and periodic leads. The agency provides nothing else of significance. Several other factors support the notion that the workers are independent contractors, including 1. The workers only receive commissions based on sales, not set salaries. 2. The workers have no fixed work schedule. 3. The workers have no hourly demands. They can work 0 hours or 24 hours per day. 4. The agency does not require the workers to attend regular meetings. 5. The workers are not obligated to pursue any leads provided by the agency. 6. The agency does not mandate a particular dress code for the workers. 7. The workers must rent their own office space at their own expense. 8. The workers can delegate certain job-related tasks to others, including telemarketers, appointment setters, and clerks. 9. The workers must pay all their own expenses, such as transportation, phone, office supplies, office equipment, mail services, advertising, state licensing fee, professional liability insurance, and others. 10. The agency grants no benefits to its workers, such as paid vacations, sick pay, pensions, bonuses, paid holidays, insurance benefits, or housing. 11. The agency does not force the workers to follow its suggestions regarding when, where, and how to work. 12. The workers perform no work on the agency's premises. 13. The workers are not required to file activity or other types of status reports. And 14. The agency treats all workers holding similar positions as independent contractors by filing Forms 1099 MISC, Miscellaneous Income, with the IRS. The agency deserves relief under Section 530. The agency's primary position likely would be that it is entitled to Section 530 relief. Accordingly, the IRS should stop its worker classification examination, and the agency should be allowed to continue treating the workers as independent contractors without further scrutiny by the IRS. History of Section 530 Section 530 is not found in the Internal Revenue Code. Rather, it is a reference to Section 530 of the Revenue Act of 1978. Confusion often results from the fact that this provision has never been codified. 
The consequence is that those looking for Section 530 in the current version of the Internal Revenue Code will be disappointed, finding rules about Coverdell Education Savings Plans, not relief from overzealous employment tax audits by the IRS. The company that satisfies all criteria to warrant so-called Section 530 relief obtains two major benefits. First, the IRS may not assess any back employment taxes, penalties, or interest charges against the company. Second, and perhaps more importantly, the IRS cannot obligate the company to reclassify the workers as employees going forward, regardless of the fact that the applicable law supports reclassification. The company gets a free pass, if you will, for past and future behavior if it can prove that Section 530 applies. It looks innocuous enough, but the general rule of Section 530 is powerful. If, for purposes of employment taxes, the company did not treat an individual as an employee for any period, and all federal tax returns, including information returns, required to be filed by the company with respect to such individual for such period are filed on a basis consistent with the company's treatment of such individual as not being an employee, then, for purposes of applying such taxes for such period with respect to the company, the individual shall be deemed not to be an employee unless the company has no reasonable basis for not treating such individual as an employee. Congress introduced Section 530 in the Revenue Act of 1978 in an effort to counter aggressive IRS worker classification audits on small businesses. According to the legislative history, the congressional relief provided to companies by Section 530 was appropriate because the IRS had dramatically increased enforcement of employment tax laws Many of the positions that the IRS began taking were contrary to those followed in earlier years, and mandatory reclassification of workers often resulted in double payment of the same taxes because companies were obligated to pay federal income tax liabilities and FICA taxes for workers, even though such workers may have already paid their own income and self-employment taxes. Congress initially contemplated a short-term reprieve for companies, while studies were conducted to analyze the scope of the problem and potential solutions. The relevant legislative history described it in the following manner. The Senate Finance Committee believes that it is appropriate to provide interim relief for taxpayers who are involved in employment tax status controversies with the Internal Revenue Service and who potentially face large assessments as a result of the service's proposed reclassifications of workers until the Congress has adequate time to resolve the many complex issues involved in this area. Section 530 has remained in effect since 1978, despite these early thoughts about a temporary halt to overreaching by the IRS. The law has been amended during this period three times, with each occasion further strengthening the rights of companies invoking Section 530 relief. For instance, the law and IRS policies have evolved to ensure that the IRS, not the company under attack, has the duty of broaching the issue of potential relief. Section 530E1, enacted in 1996, states that IRS personnel conducting a worker classification audit shall provide the company with written notice of the existence and terms of Section 530 before or at the commencement of the audit. The Internal Revenue Manual contains additional detail in this regard, stating the following. Section 530 is a relief provision that must be considered as the first step in any case involving worker classification. Relief is available to taxpayers or employers that are under examination or involved in administrative, including appeals, or judicial proceedings with respect to assessments based on employment status reclassification. 
It is not necessary for the taxpayer to claim Section 530 relief for it to be applicable. In order to correctly determine tax liability, the examiner must first explore the applicability of Section 530 even if the taxpayer does not raise the issue. Congress has stated and the IRS has officially acknowledged that Section 530 relief must be construed liberally in favor of taxpayers. Three criteria for Section 530. The law is like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It provides that if a company treated a worker as an independent contractor for certain tax periods, the worker shall be deemed to be an independent contractor for such periods, provided that the company filed federal tax and information returns in a manner consistent with the worker status as an independent contractor, reporting consistency, and treated all workers holding substantially similar positions as independent contractors, substantive consistency, and had a reasonable basis for treating the worker as an independent contractor, reasonable basis. With respect to the third component, a company has a reasonable basis for treating a worker as an independent contractor if the company reasonably relies on any of the following. Court decisions or published IRS rulings, regardless of whether they relate to the particular industry or business in which the company is engaged, or technical advice, a private letter ruling, or a determination letter from the IRS pertaining to the company, precedent safe harbor, or a past IRS audit of the company in which there was no assessment attributable to the treatment for employment tax purposes of workers holding positions substantially similar to those of the workers whose status is at issue, prior audit safe harbor, or a long-standing recognized practice of a significant segment of the industry in which the company is engaged, industry practice safe harbor, or some other reasonable basis for treating the workers as independent contractors, other reasonable basis safe harbor. It is clear that the last component should be broadly interpreted to favor the company. For example, Congress found that reasonable reliance on a qualified, informed tax professional satisfies the other reasonable basis safe harbor. Under case law, reliance on the advice of an attorney or an accountant may constitute a reasonable basis for treating a worker as an independent contractor. The IRS appears to agree with this position, provided there is a showing that the attorney or accountant was knowledgeable about the law and facts in rendering the advice. Likewise, the IRS has also acknowledged the reasonable reliance defense in its own Internal Revenue Manual. Reliance on attorney or accountant may constitute a reasonable basis. The taxpayer need not independently investigate the credentials of the attorney or accountant to determine whether such advisor has any specialized experience in the employment tax area. However, the taxpayer should establish, at a minimum, that it reasonably believes the attorney or accountant to be familiar with taxpayers' tax issues and that the advice was based on sufficient relevant facts furnished by the taxpayer to the advisor. In addition to reasonably relying on a tax professional, Congress has also recognized that a company can meet the other reasonable basis safe harbor by showing that it reviewed the common law standards and concluded that the workers in question do not fall into the employee category. According to the Congressional Report, taxpayers generally have argued successfully that reliance on the common law test can constitute a reasonable basis for purposes of applying Section 530. Application of the Law to the Agency Situation As explained above, the agency is entitled to the protection of Section 530 if there is reporting consistency, substantive consistency, and reasonable basis. 
Normally, a company has little problem meeting the first two criteria because it files Forms 1099 and treats all workers except managers and officers of the company as independent contractors. Thus, the focus of the IRS ordinarily is on whether the company had a reasonable basis. The agency only needs to show that it meets one of the four ways of establishing reasonable basis, but it might present a few for good measure. First, the agency might argue that it falls into the precedent safe harbor because at the time it began classifying the workers as independent contractors, one, there were dozens of court decisions and IRS rulings holding that life insurance salesmen were considered independent contractors under a common law analysis, a statutory employee analysis, or both. Two, the leadership of the agency was aware of such authorities, and three, the legal and tax advisors on whom the agency relied with respect to the classification issue were cognizant of such authorities too. Second, the agency might contend that it also satisfied the industry practice safe harbor because there is a long-standing and widespread practice within the insurance industry of treating soliciting agents, such as those working for the agency, as independent contractors. It is also important to note that this threshold is quite low, as the law was modified by Congress in 2006 to clarify that a company can meet the industry practice safe harbor by merely showing that more than one quarter of the industry treats similarly situated workers as independent contractors. Even after setting this small figure, Congress indicated that the bar could be even lower. The provision is intended to be a safe harbor a lower percentage may constitute a significant segment of the taxpayer's industry based on the particular facts and circumstances. Based on decades of experience in the insurance industry, active participation in various insurance groups, local, state, and national, and regular interactions with colleagues and competitors, leadership of the agency might argue that it understood that nearly 100% of insurance agencies treat their soliciting agents as independent contractors for employment tax purposes. Third, the agent likely would maintain that it had a reasonable basis for labeling the agents as independent contractors because it relied on guidance and advice from accountants and attorneys who were fully aware of the business operations, who analyzed the classification issue, and who prepared the annual Forms 1099 and not Forms W-2 for the agents. This position would be strengthened, of course, if the agency could present tangible evidence of reliance, such as written legal tax opinion, invoices for professional services, affidavits from the accountant and attorneys, etc. The workers are not common law employees. At this stage, the agency might argue that the audit should cease because it demonstrated that Section 530 applies. The IRS likely would take this under advisement for what it's worth and proceed with the audit anyway, claiming that the insurance agents are common law employees. The agency might defend itself on the following grounds. The relevant regulations provide that for purposes of federal income tax withholding, the term employee includes individuals performing services if the relationship between him and the person for whom he performs such services is the legal relationship of employer and employee. According to the regulations, one of the key factors in this determination is the degree of control possessed or exercised by the company. Generally, the relationship of employer and employee exists when the person for whom services are performed has the right to control and direct the individual who performs the services, not only as to the result to be accomplished by the work, but also as to the details and means by which the result is accomplished. 
That is, an employee is subject to the will and control of the employer not only as to what shall be done, but how it shall be done. In general, if an individual is subject to the control or direction of another merely as to the result to be accomplished by the work, and not as to the means and methods for accomplishing the result, he is not an employee. The regulations also make it clear that in making the worker classification determination, the IRS must consider the particular facts of each case. The IRS released a list of 20 factors decades ago that continues to guide the analysis. The earlier section of this article, titled Background on the Agency and its Workers, contained a long list of factors demonstrating that the agency did not have or exercise control over the workers. It was concerned with the results, not the means. The agency might conclude that this type of evidence has repeatedly convinced the IRS and the courts to classify the workers as independent contractors. The workers are not statutory employees. The IRS, often plotting and rarely imaginative, likely will proceed with the audit of the agency, despite strong defenses under Section 530 and the common law standards. Probabilities are that the next attack by the IRS will center on the concept of statutory employees. Relevant Legal Standards Section 3121 provides that, for FICA purposes, the term employee includes any individual other than an officer of a corporation or an individual who is considered an employee under the common law rules who performs services for remuneration for any person as a full-time life insurance salesman if the contract of service contemplates that substantially all of such services are to be performed personally by such individual, except that the individual shall not be included in the term employee under the provisions of this paragraph if such individual has a substantial investment in facilities used in connection with the performances of such services, other than in facilities for transportation or if the services are in the nature of a single transaction not part of a continuing relationship with the person for whom the services are performed. The corresponding regulations identify various occupational groups, the members of which generally are considered employees. Among these groups are those who work as full-time life insurance salesmen. Importantly, the regulations contain an example reflecting the IRS's intent that the scope of this group be limited, an individual whose entire or principal business activity is devoted to the solicitation of life insurance or annuity contracts, or both, primarily for one life insurance company, is a full-time life insurance salesman. Such a salesman ordinarily uses the office space provided by the company or its general agent, and stenographic assistance, telephone facilities, forms, rate books, and advertising materials are usually made available to him without cost. An individual who is engaged in the general insurance business under a contract or contracts of service which do not contemplate that the individual's principal business activity will be the solicitation of life insurance or annuity contracts, or both, for one company, or any individual who devotes only part-time to the solicitation of life insurance contracts, including annuity contracts, and is principally engaged in other endeavors, is not a full-time life insurance salesman. The regulations go on to further narrow the category of full-time life insurance salesmen. They state that even if an individual initially falls within one of the occupational groups, such individual is not to be considered an employee unless 1. 
The contract of service contemplates that substantially all the services to which the contract relates in the particular designated occupation are to be performed personally by such individual. Two, such individual has no substantial investment in the facilities used in connection with the performance of such services. And three, such services are part of a continuing relationship with the person for whom the services are performed and are not in the nature of a single transaction. Reasons why the agency's workers are not statutory employees. The agency might counter the IRS attack by arguing that its workers are not full-time life insurance salesmen and thus are not statutory employees based on three main arguments. The agency did not provide certain items to the workers. First, the relevant regulations indicate that a full-time life insurance salesman ordinarily uses office space provided by the insurance company or its general agent, and typing assistance, telephone facilities, forms, rate books, and advertising materials are usually provided to the individual free of charge. The agency does not provide office space to the workers. They are free to establish a home office or lease outside space. In all cases, though, the workers are financially responsible for such offices. Moreover, the agency does not offer free typing assistance, telephone facilities, or advertising to the workers. They are each personally responsible for these matters. The workers did not work on a full-time basis. Second, the workers are not full-time salesmen for the agency, as this concept has been described by the IRS for over four decades. This argument finds support in Revenue Ruling 69288, a portion of which is included below. The company, under its agency organization, enters into a contract with a general agent. The contract gives the general agent the exclusive right to solicit applications for insurance and annuity contracts within a specified territory. The company has a large number of general agents, each one of which maintains an office at its own expense and is compensated by commissions and collection fees based upon a fixed percentage of insurance premiums. Each general agent contracts with certain district agents and special agents for the development of various parts of the territory covered by the general agency contract. The district agents and special agents, in turn, contract with soliciting agents who solicit applications for life insurance and annuity contracts. However, the other agents in the organization, including the general agents, may also solicit such applications. The district agents, special agents, and soliciting agents also conduct their business operations at their own expense and receive their entire remuneration in the form of commissions. All insurance matters, including insurance applications and premium collections, relating to the territory of each general agent, pass through his office. The agent's contracts do not permit the company to prescribe rules governing the development of clientele or the time or place of solicitation, or otherwise control the physical activities of the agent. The agents are not full-time life insurance salesmen. They can come and go as they please, and they are not required to spend a fixed amount of time working for the company. The company does not furnish or control the means of transportation, nor is it required to pay for the means used by the agent. It has no right to say whether an agent shall or shall not advertise. If the agent does advertise, the advertising copy must first be submitted to the company in order that there be no misrepresentation or statements in violation of law or contrary to the rulings of insurance departments. The agent usually has an extensive territory and maintains his office wholly upon his own responsibility and his own expense. The IRS determined in Revenue Ruling 69-288 that the worker was not an employee under a common law analysis and a statutory employee analysis. 
In coming to the latter conclusion, the IRS focused on the following. Since the agents are not full-time life insurance salesmen, they are not employees of the company as defined in Section 3121 D3B. The agency might explain to the IRS that, like the situation in Revenue Ruling 69288, the salesmen working for the agency are free to come and go as they please, and they are not required to spend a certain fixed period of time working for the agency. Accordingly, based on the precedent set and followed by the IRS for over four decades, the agency's workers should not be considered full-time life insurance salesmen. The workers did not work for just one insurance agency. Third, the agency's workers are not working primarily for one life insurance agency, as the regulations require in order to be classified as a statutory employee. As explained above, the agency is an insurance agency, not an insurance company, that underwrites policies, assumes financial risks, pays claims, etc. The agency essentially acts as a conduit for multiple insurance companies. It is not an insurance company in any legal or practical sense of the word. Indeed, workers for the agency earn renewal commissions from the sale of products from multiple insurance companies. The tax court issued a decision a few years ago that solidifies this point. In Bayer, TC Summary Opinion 2006-125, the issue was whether the worker was a full-time life insurance salesman. The worker was an agent for Corbin Financial Services, which represented several life insurance companies. At trial, the worker testified that he had placed insurance for his clients with at least six separate insurance companies. In holding that the worker was not a full-time life insurance salesman, the court stated the following. It is quite evident, therefore, that petitioner's work with Corbin was not devoted to one insurance company. Over the years, several courts have held that life insurance salesmen should be classified as independent contractors under both a common law analysis and a statutory employee analysis, even when their worker was restricted from representing certain entities. See, for example, Reserve National Insurance Company, 1974, WL 572. Most of the contracts recited that the salesman could do no business for or be appointed by any other insurance company without the prior written permission of an officer of the taxpayer. Standard Life and Accident Insurance Company, 1975, WL 543. Contractual provisions which call for an agent's devotion of full time, attention to the business of the company, and or which restrict or prohibit his sales for other companies, do not by themselves require the conclusion that the agents are employees. And Simpson, 64 TC 974, 1975. The restriction on Simpson's ability to sell insurance for other companies admittedly restricted his freedom to pick and choose from competing insurance policies, those policies that best suited the interests of his clients. This restriction did not, however, serve to control petitioner with regard to the means or details by which he sold farmers' insurance policies. In Butts, TCM 1993-478, the agreement between the worker and Allstate Insurance Agency included the following restriction on the worker's sales activities. Under the agreement, Mr. Butts agreed to devote all of his business time to selling Allstate insurance products. Mr. Butts also agreed not to represent or solicit insurance for any other company without Allstate's prior written approval. In arguing that the worker should be classified as an employee, the IRS pointed to several provisions in the agreement, including the one that restricted the worker's ability to sell other products. The tax court swiftly rejected the IRS's argument, stating the following. 
Based on the record in this case and settled legal principles, we conclude that respondents' emphasis on these agreement provisions is misplaced. In fact, with the exception of respondents' argument regarding one of the agreement's discharge provisions, we have previously addressed whether the types of restrictions respondent points to in this case bear on an insurance company's control of an insurance agent's professional behavior, and we have squarely concluded that they have no bearing on such inquiry. In favor, TCM 1995-107, a case with facts similar to those in Butts, the IRS again tried to argue that the restriction on a worker's ability to sell certain insurance products converted the worker into an employee. Consistent with its previous decision, the tax court rejected the IRS's position. Respondent focuses on the fact that petitioner could not sell insurance products other than through American family or brokerage, that is, a wholly owned subsidiary of American family. The restriction on petitioner's ability to place insurance with other insurance companies did not serve to control the means and details by which he conducted his business activities. The restriction admittedly restricted petitioner's freedom to pick and choose from competing insurance policies, those policies that best suited the interests of his clients. However, it did not serve to control petitioner with regard to the means or details by which he sold American family insurance policies. After Butts, the courts issued a number of decisions and the IRS issued several rulings following the principles established in Butts. They found that the insurance salesmen in each case were independent contractors. Based on the decisions in these cases, the agency would argue that any restrictions that it imposed on the insurance agents about working for competitors would not convert the relationship into one of employee-employer. Classification Settlement Program Experience dictates that regardless of the strength of the agency's position on Section 530, common law employee standards, and statutory employee standards, revenue agents often refuse to acknowledge defeat. This triggers the need to address the IRS's Classification Settlement Program, or CSP. Background on the Classification Settlement Program General ignorance of the CSP is the norm. This is probably attributable to the obscure materials in which details about the CSP appear. In 1996, the IRS issued a news release announcing the CSP and identifying it as a two-year trial program. At the end of this initial period, in 1998, the IRS decided to extend the CSP indefinitely because both an internal review and public comments indicated that it was achieving its goal of resolving worker classification cases at an early stage. Details about the CSP are somewhat challenging to find because they derive primarily from a field service advisory in 1996, as restated and expanded in the Internal Revenue Manual. The description of the CSP below comes from these two sources. In cases where it appears that a company may have misclassified a worker, the revenue agent must fully develop the issue and determine, among other things, whether a misclassification occurred under applicable law whether the company is eligible for Section 530 relief, and if not, whether the company is entitled to a CSP offer. If the revenue agent and his superiors conclude that a CSP offer is in order, they must decide which of two graduated settlement offers the IRS will make. In situations where the company had reporting consistency but clearly lacked either substantive consistency or reasonable basis, the CSP offer entails assessment of 100% of the employment tax liability for the one tax year under audit. 
computed using the special rates under Section 3509, if applicable, or one-year, 100% offer. The second offer is better. In cases where the company had reporting consistency and has a colorable argument that it also had substantive consistency or reasonable basis, the CSP offer contemplates assessment of just 25% of the employment tax liability for the one tax year under audit, computed using the special rates under Section 3509 if applicable, one-year, 25% offer. The downside is that under either scenario, the company must agree to reclassify the workers in question as employees going forward, starting the first day of the quarter following the date of the closing agreement. IRS personnel are instructed to consult a CSP analysis chart in making determinations in worker classification cases. Visualizing the process may help some readers comprehend the IRS's decision-making tree better. To appreciate the benefit of the two CSP offers, one must look beyond the Internal Revenue Manual to two obscure provisions, Section 3509 and Section 6205. Reduced Tax Rates Under Section 3509 In 1982, Congress realized that three major problems existed with forcing a company to reclassify its workers as employees. One, the company could be assessed income taxes, FICA taxes, and FUTA taxes for all years still open under the statute of limitations. Two, overpayments of federal income taxes may occur if the company were obligated to pay these amounts in situations where workers personally paid these amounts earlier via estimated tax payments or with their individual income tax returns. And three, Overpayments of FICA taxes could occur, too, if the company were required to pay these amounts in cases where the workers already did so through self-employment taxes. Congress understood that in the case of a forced reclassification, the IRS generally would adjust or lower assessments for the company's failure to withhold, provided that the company could furnish certificates signed by those workers who were reclassified, showing that the workers had personally paid these taxes. However, Congress underscored the practical challenges associated with this supposed clemency by the IRS. Obtaining certificates would be a difficult burden and a serious retroactive tax burden on a company in cases involving jobs with high turnover rates or where workers were numerous, uncooperative, and or poor record keepers. In light of this reality, Congress enacted Section 3509, which was hailed as a new procedure designed to substantially simplify the law, reduce burdens on companies, approximate the average tax liability of a company after assuming certain levels of tax compliance by individual workers who were reclassified, and punish the company for its violations. Here's how Section 3509 works. As mentioned above, both the one-year 100% offer and the one-year 25% offer indicate that the employment tax liability for the year in question might be calculated under the special rates found in Section 3509. When a company incorrectly treats an employee as an independent contractor, the company is liable for the employee's federal income tax withholding and the employee's share of FICA taxes, not to mention the company's share of the FICA taxes and unemployment taxes. Assuming that the company did not intentionally disregard its duty to withhold, Section 3509 sets forth two different levels of payback. In situations where the company filed annual forms 1099 for the workers, the company must pay 1. Income tax withholding calculated as 1.5% of the workers' wages, 2. 
20% of the employee's share of FICA, and 3. 100% of the company's share of FICA. The outcome is slightly worse for a company that did not file Forms 1099 for the workers. In such cases, the company must pay 1. Income tax withholding calculated as 3% of the workers' wages, 2. 40% of the employee's share of FICA, and 3. 100% of the company's share of FICA. Interest-free payments under Section 6205. As explained above, a company agreeing to resolve a worker classification case under the CSP limits its exposure to the one year under audit by the IRS, avoids penalties, and, depending on the circumstances, enjoys the reduced rates under Section 3509 related to the federal income taxes and FICA taxes that it failed to withhold from its workers and remit to the IRS. Settling under the CSP could trigger one more benefit for a company, interest waiver. The intricacies of the relevant provision, Section 6205, far exceed the scope of this article, but it is important to be aware of its existence and basic function. Section 6205 and the regulations thereunder contain rules allowing for interest-free adjustments under certain circumstances. Importantly, these rules have been liberally interpreted by the IRS for decades, thereby allowing companies that concede worker classification cases to avoid interest charges. Burden of proof shifts to IRS. If a company establishes a prima facie case that it was reasonable to treat the workers as independent contractors, and the company has fully cooperated with reasonable requests from the IRS during the audit, the burden of proof with respect to the classification issue shifts to the IRS. Citing the high incidence of worker classification disputes, the fact that many of these disputes involve small businesses without adequate resources to challenge the IRS and the costly litigation resulting from the disputes, Congress further clarified its reasons for placing the burden on the IRS. In light of the unique nature of the legislative history to Section 530, which provides it should be construed liberally in favor of taxpayers, the committee believes that the burden of proof should generally be on the IRS once the taxpayer establishes a prima facie case that it was reasonable not to treat the worker as an employee, and provided the taxpayer fully cooperates with reasonable requests for information by the IRS. Keeping in mind the congressional mandate that Section 530 relief must be construed liberally in favor of taxpayers, the agency might argue that it has established a prima facie case that it was reasonable to treat the soliciting agents as independent contractors. Accordingly, the burden is on the IRS during the audit and in tax court trial to show that such treatment by the agency was unreasonable. Notice of Intent to Seek Reimbursement of Fees In addition to claiming that it is entitled to shelter under Section 530, it was correct in classifying the workers as independent contractors, and it can move the burden of proof to the IRS on the issues, the agency might also warn the IRS that it plans to seek reimbursement of all legal and accounting fees going forward if the IRS insists on protracting the dispute, because the IRS's positions are no longer substantially justified. Generally, the prevailing party in any administrative proceeding against the IRS or in any litigation brought by or against the U.S. government in connection with the determination, collection, or refund of any tax, interest, or penalty may be awarded reasonable administrative and or litigation costs. Recoverable administrative costs may include charges imposed by the IRS, legal fees, reasonable expenses for expert witnesses, 
and costs of any study, analysis, report, test, or project necessary for the preparation of the taxpayer's case. The litigation costs for which the taxpayer may seek reimbursement follow similar guidelines. The term prevailing party generally means a party in any tax-related administrative proceeding or litigation that, one, has substantially prevailed with respect to either the amount in controversy or the most significant issues presented, and two, has a net worth that does not exceed certain statutory thresholds. Even if the taxpayer substantially prevails and meets the net worth requirement, the taxpayer will not be deemed the prevailing party if the government establishes that its position was substantially justified. In other words, if the government manages to prove that the position it took during the administrative dispute or litigation was substantially justified, the taxpayer is precluded from recovering costs. Understanding what constitutes a substantial justification, therefore, is paramount. Until 1996, the burden was on the taxpayer to demonstrate that the government's position was not substantially justified. This radically changed with the enactment of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights II, which shifted the onus to the government. According to congressional reports, the successful taxpayer will receive an award of attorney's fees unless the IRS satisfies its burden of proof. This litigation introduced another major change. It required the IRS to follow its published guidance disseminated to the public, as well as its private guidance provided to particular taxpayers. If it fails to do so, it runs the risk of lacking an acceptable justification for a proposed tax treatment. Congress further advanced the issue in favor of taxpayers in 1998 with the passage of the Taxpayer Bill of Rights III. The legislation empowered the courts to take into account whether the government has lost on similar issues in appellate courts for other circuits in determining if the government's position is substantially justified. The relevant congressional reports reveal the purpose for this increased pressure. Congress was concerned that the IRS would continue to litigate issues that have been previously decided in other circuits. This brand of stubborn litigiousness, say the reports, would place an undue burden on those taxpayers forced to dispute decided issues. The legislative modifications discussed above have been incorporated into the Internal Revenue Code and corresponding regulations. The general rule still stands that a taxpayer will not be considered a prevailing party and thus will not be entitled to reimbursement if the government's position was substantially justified. However, there is now a rebuttable presumption that the government's position is not substantially justified if it failed to follow its applicable published guidance during a proceeding. Such guidance includes regulations, final or temporary, revenue rulings, information releases, notices, and announcements. It also encompasses various items issued to the particular taxpayer involved in a dispute, such as private letter rulings, technical advice memoranda, and determination letters. In deciding whether the position taken by the government was substantially justified, the courts are instructed to consider whether it lost on similar issues in federal appeals courts. The regulations provide additional clarity regarding what constitutes a substantial justification. For instance, they explain that the government's position is substantially justified only if it has a reasonable basis in both fact and law. A significant factor in making this determination is whether the taxpayer presented all the relevant information under his control to the appropriate IRS personnel. 
This seems logical because a taxpayer should have little room to complain about the government's position when he fails to provide the information, documentation, and arguments necessary to support his own stance. Along with the legislative history and the regulations, case law is helpful in identifying what represents a substantial justification. Certain courts have developed a framework, a non-exhaustive list of factors to be considered. Among these factors are, one, the stage at which the issue or litigation is resolved, two, the opinions of other courts on the same underlying issues, three, the legal merits of the government's position, four, the clarity of the governing law, five, the foreseeable length and complexity of the litigation, and six, the consistency of the government's position. Other courts have utilized a different approach, scrutinizing whether the position taken by the IRS was reasonable. These courts hold that a position is substantially justified if it is justified to a reasonable degree that could satisfy a reasonable person, or that has a reasonable basis in both law and fact. Still, other courts rely on a different test, presenting the question as whether the government knew or should have known that its position was invalid at the time it took it. Conclusion As this article demonstrates, when ambushed by the IRS with allegations that its workers should be treated as employees, a well-represented company, such as the agency studied in these pages, might defend itself by raising some or all of the following arguments. Section 530 is a relief provision that must be considered by revenue agents as the first step in any audit involving worker classification. The agency meets all the requirements of Section 530. Therefore, the IRS should discontinue its worker classification audit, and the agency should be allowed to continue treating the workers as independent contractors forevermore. If the agency somehow fails to qualify for Section 530 relief, it would nonetheless not be subject to any employment tax deficiencies, penalties, or interest, and would be entitled to continue treating the workers as independent contractors because such workers are neither common law employees nor statutory employees. To the extent that the agency agrees to resolve the case for strategic and economic reasons as opposed to legal reasons, it would be entitled to the best possible terms under the CSP meaning that it would only pay 25% of the employment tax liability for one tax year, computing such liability using the special rates under Section 3509 without interest charges. The agency established during the audit a prima facie case that it was reasonable to treat the workers as independent contractors, and the agency and its representatives fully cooperated with the audit. Accordingly, under Section 530E-4A, the burden of proof with respect to the worker classification shifts to the IRS. If the IRS declines to conclude the audit in favor of the agency, the agency is forced to incur fees and costs to defend itself with the appeals office and or in court, and the agency ultimately prevails, the agency intends to seek reimbursement from the IRS of all relevant fees and costs under Section 7430 because, based on evidence provided to the IRS during the audit, the IRS's positions that the agency fails to satisfy Section 530 and the workers are not independent contractors are not substantially justified. The building blocks for mounting a formidable worker classification defense are timeless, and they will become crucial again when the IRS inevitably refocuses its limited resources on this perennial issue. Thank you for listening to this article, Anatomy of a Worker Classification Dispute with the IRS, by Hale E. Shepard. 
published in Practical Tax Strategies, October 2019. Read for you by Kristen Dummer.